let me, before anything, pray and ask for the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Dear Heavenly Father, what a blessed day you have given us today to come together in your presence to praise you and worship you. We thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for your scripture, revealing to us your truth, your voice, for us to adhere to your guidance. Lord, we humbly ask that you would guide our minds, our thoughts, our hearts today. Let the truth to be delivered through your servant and let us glorify you. Let us first truly realize your love for us and how that changes our identity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last week, Pastor Luke preached up to verse 17, and the topic for today has been introduced, which is suffering, our suffering in this present life. So let's have a quick mind exercise. Can we just take a brief moment and think about the concept of suffering? What is suffering? Especially how we are exposed to the presence of suffering in our lives. I'm not sure if I could meet anyone who's ever actually been and never been frustrated or suffered in life. In fact, since the moment we start living, that's the starting of suffering as the babies come out and cry out of frustration, out of suffering. They don't like it. And that's the better version of birth. It doesn't take long for us to recall some of the sufferings that haunted us in the past, maybe there are some things that are very much ongoing in this present day. So when you face these sufferings, sufferings in life, hardships, difficulties, how do you deal with them? Um, I try to think about how I respond, and the initial thing that pops up is I try to avoid them. I try to ignore them. I say, how do I get rid of this thing? This is bad, so I don't want this in my life. And I'm sure all of us here can share that experience one way or another, just hating suffering, uh, hating pain. In our present life, we do encounter some form of suffering. So how do we make of this? How do we understand this? Paul reminds us in today's passage from Romans 8 how to view suffering in life, how to understand them, and how to deal with them. So I would like to give you three points for today's text. In light of suffering, what do we do? And in light of suffering, what do we know? In light of suffering, then, what does God do? I'll talk about what we know, what we do, and what does God do? So first point, what do we know? Let's first briefly touch up on the overall context of Romans 8. Romans 8 is about what the Holy Spirit does and what it means for us to be in Christ. And on the fa- past few days, we talked about what condemnation means when we are in Christ, what justification means when we are in Christ. And we learned here that we are not bound under the dominion of law, the flesh anymore, and the Spirit frees us And that we are adopted children of God, the Father. We're now enabled by the Holy Spirit to live according to the law of God, to please Him and enjoy Him. Then in verse 17 on Romans 8, a verse before today's passage, we're introduced with that topic, suffering. It says that we are called to be fellow heirs with Christ. And in that context, suffering 
is given to us in Christ. It's one of the things that we share in Christ as fellow heirs. And today's passage digs deeper into the meanings and implications of that. So let's take a look at verse 18. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. First, today's passage starts with a summary statement for the rest of the chapter. It says that we must view our suffering in light of the future suffering. We must view our present suffering in light of the future glory. We see how Paul looks at the suffering with the future glory in mind. But when I'm looking at this, um, my initial response isn't, that's right. Uh, I should be doing that. I do that. It's more like, ah, I do other things with suffering. Do I look at um, future glory that is yet to come when I'm looking at suffering? And do I find peace in that? And I find myself constantly failing in that. But Paul teaches us more about this matter. In this passage, we learn that before anything else, we must first acknowledge the true presence of the suffering while we're here on the earth. That suffering is a reality that we must not lose sight of. Paul says we must remember that it will be there and it is there in present life. And he illustrates this through the description of creation. Verse 18, he told how we should view it in light of future glory, and he explains how that shows in creation in verse 19 to 21. Verse 19, he says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It says the creation was subjected to futility. Futility, another meaning for that word could be frustration. The whole creation is just subjected to frustration. It's frustrated with the way things are because it knows what should be. It knows it's so not perfect. So it eagerly waits for future redemption. And we're thinking about this reality and we want to touch up on the question, was it always this way? Was suffering always there? Where did this frustration, where did this misery come from? And it wasn't this way in the very beginning, as we learned, didn't we? In the very beginning, in Genesis, when God created the world, it wasn't so. In fact, the creator himself, when he made everything, he said it was good. In fact, it was very good. But we know what happened in Genesis 3 when Sin entered the world. As we saw in Romans 5, through one man entered sin and misery. And the, wall, the whole world just changed. It's filled with imperfection now. So let's look at verse 22. It said, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We want to remember here how the whole creation is groaning in pain. That's going to come up later in the passage where creation's groaning and we're going to see other things groaning in that manner. The nature is frustrated and it's groaning actively. It does not accept the present state 
So it's actively groaning. It hurts. Verse 21, I'm going to remind you that, there, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. At this point, uh, we could remind ourselves that very thing that we were talking about. Why did this happen? And the Bible gives the answer of sin as the cause of death and suffering. So from verse 19 to 22, by using the analogy of creation, Paul shows how there is suffering and they await. Creation awaits for the future redemption, future glory. And starting from verse 23, the camera angle changes to us. He says, creation is suffering and waiting for glory. And just as that, we do the same. Let's read verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. When Paul says here, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, that means that the work of the Holy Spirit has already begun in us. And it will surely be brought to its intended finale. That's who he is referring to, us Christians. So what are the things that we groan about? Um, what makes you groan? What makes you respond with that, saying, this is not good. I, I hate this God. This, this sucks. It can be someone at your work. It can be uh, something that you go through in studies. It could very well be at home when I'm looking at my kid failing to go to the toilet instead of, yeah. It's tough. It's suffering. And <laughs> the future glory, the future perfection is invisible. Uh, in that kind of experience, we see how we're groaning because we know it's not the way it should be. Uh, we have the sense of what it should be, and it's not in the present state. The answer to the point, what do we know, is that we must first acknowledge the true presence of suffering while we're here on this earth, and we groan for this. Then what are we, uh, we are led to the second point, what are we to do? What do we do? And first thing we remember is we wait for redemption. Verse 23 unwraps some of these things. It says, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we are told to wait for these things. These things, the adoption as sons, it says redemption of our bodies. And really what it's actually talking about is the perfection of all things. We must wait eagerly for the perfection. So let's talk about adoption once again. In verse, uh, verses 14 to 17, we did mention that we were already adopted by God, didn't we? So what is this talking about when we're saying we should wait for the adoption? Aren't we already adopted? What are we waiting for in adoption? A commentator says about this, Christians at the moment of justification are adopted into God's family, but this adoption is incomplete and partial until we are finally made like the Son of God himself. So here our already not yet dynamic is already at play, where we are already adopted and yet not adopted. So what about the redemption of our bodies in verse 23? The commentator continues, 
The redemption is complete only until the body has been transformed. And Paul hints this in verse 10, saying the body is dead because of sin. In this life, our bodies share in that frustration which characterizes this world as a whole. So just as the creation yearns for redemption, freedom from sin and perfection, we also groan and wait eagerly for the redemption, perfection of things. Perfection, completion of things. A world where there is no more corruption, something that we don't have right now, something that we cannot see right now, that's what we're told to await for when we see the current suffering. Then it talks about in what manner are we demanded to do the waiting. How do we wait? Turn to verse 25 with me. I'll read it, verse 25. Uh, verse 25 says, we wait for it with patience. We wait for that perfection, the redemption, patiently. We are asked to be steadfast, patiently hold on to God's word. That kind of commandment is distributed all throughout the Bible. Verse 41 of Psalm 119 calls God's steadfast love to be ours. James 1.12 tells us, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. These are some strong sense of active emotion, active energy in the doing of waiting, not a passive receiving and saying, let's see what happens. There's an active sense of waiting for God's redemption faithfully. Verses like 2 Thessalonians 3.13, Galatians 6.9 encourage us to not grow weary of this. And James 1.6 telling us to not doubt. And later in Romans 12, we're going to see how we should be patient in those trials and so on. When we face trials, sufferings, and frustration in life, we're told to look to the future of perfection that is yet to come patiently. Um, what are some examples of waiting for the future patiently? I briefly mentioned uh, my child. Uh, my son is four-year-old. My daughter is six. And um, this actually applies to me every day to await for the future patiently uh, because my initial reaction is not that, but the very opposite, to say, can you just um, stop crying? Because it's just so, it hurts you, it hurts me, everyone's suffering. Why are you crying? <laughs> I remember uh, Jean, my daughter's um, sleeping habits. She couldn't fall asleep, and um, I shouldn't be blaming her because she wasn't even one year old. But uh, <laughs> I was telling her this is illogical because she's angry and frustrated by her tiredness. So the answer is to fall asleep and not cry. But because she's so tired and she wants to sleep, she would not sleep and cry and yell at me, looking at me and screaming, do something. She didn't say that, but she, she said it with cry. And I remember on my gym ball, because I, I used to rock her in gym ball because I got tired, I just thought, could you just stop? Could you just stop? Just sleep right now. Not the way that Paul was um, c commanding here, to wait patiently the future day where she would start to sleep. That day has come. Praise God. 
but now I have a son. He's four-year-old. He still has struggle in sleeping. So I, uh, I fail in this commandment. I do not successfully look to the hope that is invisible. Maybe I'm just a bad sinner who can't see the hope. But I think what my mistake is, I'm looking into myself as the doing of this thing. I'm searching my heart saying, what do I do to await and wait patiently for God's work? If we're looking at ourselves, we're generating that good works in sanctification. It is a mission bound to fail. Because that was what Romans was all about in the beginning. We are totally depraved that we are incapable of doing such things, starting from salvation and even the good works that we, we have right now. Just because we're justified doesn't mean now we're perfect being able to do good works. So we're looking at ourselves, we're failing. That's what leads us to the last point. If when we're weak, when we are failing, what does God do for us? That's the third point. Look at how it moves from verse 25 to 26. Up to verses 25, we heard that commandment. Wait eagerly and patiently for that future glory. Now to our question, but we fail, we're weak, what do we do? Verse 26 says this. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We see here that it is the work of the Holy Spirit when we are weak. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. So we just want to remember that salvation, justification is God's work. Sanctification is also God's work. Our prayer life is also God's work. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4 and 5 told us, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Not ourselves, but in Christ we have confidence. So why in Christ? Uh, uh, we are talking about this topic today, suffering. We get to ask, uh, who suffered? Who really suffered? When we're talking about us suffering, it is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who successfully suffered for us. What the difference is, is that he actually has completed the work of suffering, and he has obtained future glory. We haven't. But now, by the grace of God, we're united with Christ, we're co-heirs with Christ, and we share that very suffering, and we're awaiting for that future glory that is yet to come for us, but is already obtained in Christ. In Christ, we have hope and we have sufficiency. We have confidence. Today's passage is bringing a further description of just how God works in us in that manner. As Jesus, seated on the right hand of the Father, he sends us the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit is at work in us. So let's see how that Spirit works in us. Verse, verses 23 to 25, we see how God enables us to see hope in the future glory. In order for us to see what God does in us, we could understand what hope is that Paul is talking about. What kind of hope are we talking about? Let's see verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. In this hope we were saved. What kind of hope? This is the hope of the glory, the future glory in our redemption. Freedom from sins. 
And all throughout chapter 8, we've been learning that the subject of who's doing all these works was the Holy Spirit. So let's learn about how this Holy Spirit shows us hope and allows us to hope for that hope. The nature of the hope that verse 24 tells us is that that hope that God gives us is invisible. Invisible hope. Verse 24, let me read that. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? This hope, we saw this before in verse 20, where creation was subjected to futility in hope. That when, when the creation was fallen into that condition, it wasn't without hope. God did it with hope. So when we think about our salvation, we Christians are saved with hope. Once again, there is that tension of already and not yet. We borrow the commentator's explanation here. Hope, Paul is saying, has been associated with our experience of our salvation from the beginning. Always our salvation, while definitely secured for us at conversion, has had an element of incompleteness in which the forward look is necessary. The text explains itself as the last part of the verse talks about the very nature of hope, looking in confidence for that which one cannot see. Then it says, verse 24, rest of it, Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We hope for what we do not see. We hope for what we do not see. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Being able to see what we do not see. So what are some examples of invisible hope? There are some um, ex examples in creation also. Think about gardening. Uh, when we plant the seed, when we do that and we completed the day's work, do we see the plant? We cannot see the outcome, the future perfection of that, but yet we envision it. We have that image in our head that is not here yet, but we, with that belief, we do the act. What about um, studying? Um, only after the final, you get the GPA. Only after the final, you get 4.0, because everybody gets 4.0. No. Um, but um, you await for that. You envision that perfection, that goal, while not having received, not having that thing visible in our eyes. We do that. That's what hoping for an invisible hope looks like. There are many examples like that, and it's, it, I could always come back to a child experience. Uh, they're still young. They're still short, everything, but you don't think that that's going to stay the same way. If it stays the same way, if my son stays the same way, there is something wrong with it. If he's 20 and still crying for candy, there is something wrong with that. But right now he does, and I should be okay with that. But the Holy Spirit gives us that hope and the ability to hope for the glory. And what else does the Holy Spirit do for us? Uh, he helps us in our weakness as he groans for us and intercedes for us. Let's look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit first groans for us. We saw how creation groaned. We groaned. Now the Spirit is groaning 
for us. And there's this big difference between the creation, us and the creation, versus the creator himself, where we groan without knowing the perfection, without having the information, the knowledge of what it should be, what is the solution, as opposed to our creator who knows everything, who has the power of everything, and he groans for us. Yes, we, just as the text says, we don't know what to pray for. In fact, there are many times where our sadness, our groaning, becomes just too severe in depth where we don't know what to say. Have you experienced that? Where sometimes if the burden is light, you can faithfully just remember what you remember and pray for it, but there are some times where you're just completely lost for words. And you are at that moment trying to pray, but you have no idea what to do. At that completely darkened pit, in that mist, what is the message from God? Is it God telling us, try harder and I will meet you at the end? Or is it, sorry, you're so depraved and you have no hope, you got nothing? That, that's not the message of the gospel. Rather, the good news is God is telling us, when you are weak, I am strong. When you are weak, when you are defeated, no hope, I will do it for you. That's the message of the gospel. When you are a sinner condemned to eternal damnation, I save you. That's our understanding of our salvation, God's work, not ours done by God, but many times I think we do fall into that temptation, thinking that God's work stops from, uh, by saving us. He has given us the salvation. Now it's your turn to return. Justification is God's work, but not sanctification. That's not necessarily what Paul's telling us here. He's telling us, even after that conversion, Holy Spirit is the one working in us. It's God's work in us who's able to give him true glory, look to the future perfection. That is the message of the gospel. The groaning in us, when we are in groaning too deep for words, the Spirit intercedes for us. Interceding, God doing it for us, Verse 27, let me read it again. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because of the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Let's talk about the intercession of the Holy Spirit. As he groans for us, now he intercedes for us. What does that mean? How does the Holy Spirit inter exactly intercede for us when we don't know what to pray? God knows the content. That's how he helps us. When we don't know their answers, he knows the answers. When we, know, when we don't know what to do, he knows what to do, and he does it for us. And in further understanding of this intercession of the Holy Spirit, I think reaffirming the definition of what prayer is could be helpful. Uh, many times uh, I think we skip the definition of what a prayer is. We do talk quite often about we should pray. Let's do the prayer. Uh, 
I should be doing more prayer. Uh, I didn't pray, um, but not constantly reminding us what a prayer is. I think I fall into that temptation too, thinking about a concept of prayer. Um, it's really easy for me to think that a prayer is what is just being uttered intelligibly, out loud either, or in my head, uttered out loud in my head. I think that's where I struggle more to conceptualize the work of the Holy Spirit in us. When we just think that's what prayer is, saying something or thinking something, isn't there more to who we are than those things? There are unformed words and concepts that are in us subconsciously. There are things that are lying lower than that, such as instinctive realm, our intuitive realm, who we are. And then there is that very basic, essential nature of our being. And that's where we confess that is, we are totally depraved sinners. Naturally, innately, we are depraved sinners, incapable of doing good. And in that bottom of who we are, that's where God changed us into a completely another creation when he adopted us into his kingdom. And when we became God's follower, when we became the co-heir of Christ, we became the spirit-filled people, not the people in the dominion of sin. So in that, in us, Holy Spirit in us, living in Christ, praying for us. Just as Christ suffered and died on our own behalf, the Holy Spirit is praying on our own behalf. That should be a great source of confidence. Not only limited to what we could intelligibly think out loud right now. Below that, behind that, even greater than what we think we could know, Holy Spirit knows. And He is actively praying for us in the midst of our suffering. That growth in us knowing what we should be praying for is growing. So that gives a confidence in another thing where we don't really have to tremble in fear about praying the wrong things. Of course, praying the wrong things is bad, sure. But we don't have to be in fear because at the end of the day, it is the Holy Spirit who prays for us. And it's that Holy Spirit who will continue to grow our knowledge in His will, in who He is. So we just submit to that rather than being in fear, not following him. In conclusion, the message of today's passage is, in this midst of our suffering, the Holy Spirit helps us by giving us hope and interceding for us and allowing us to patiently persevere. We should remember that there will be suffering. And there will be until the end until Christ comes back, until we become one with him. The first remedy in response to the suffering should not be the removal of them. That would only lead us to continue to complain, saying, why am I still suffering? God promises us the Holy Spirit to wait patiently and persevere until that future. So we must look to hope. We must not lose sight of the future redemption that awaits but the cool thing is, God gives us not only that hope, the eternal hope, heavenly hope, we should look to that. Also, however, God does graciously 
give us a glimpse of that glory in our lives. He does show some sanctification, continue to grow in us. Not in our own timeline, though. In his timeline, he does show. This message comes as a strong encouragement for me. Because I grew up hating exercise, but rather loving food. Somehow my father put it, no, my whole family put it side by side and said, it's either you praise God with food or you love exercise. And somehow I looked down upon that. And now I'm in a danger of cholesterol and all those things and uh, being a lazy father. Um, so I started doing exercise uh, after my graduation more dedicatedly about a month now. Um, I'm pretty proud of the actual progress of what I'm doing, but what's really hopeless is when I look down, I do not see the future glorious six-pack. <laughs> it's invisible. It's the invisible hope. And I do not see that, and it's hopeless because I work at it, and I get the pain, and I don't see it. But this message tells me, not necessarily that I will get six-pack, but the invisible hope I should put into my purpose. See it without seeing it, and believing faithfully and patiently working and enduring through the suffering. On the more serious note, to be struggling in faith to God in general, as I suffer from my own mistakes, it's really, um, it's really hopeless when I see myself continuously fall into temptations. And yet again, seeing how bad I am while I'm always thinking how gracious Christ is. It makes me very depressed. But this message tells me that while I'm still at work in the suffering, God promises me the future glory. Or when I see my children, it's pretty appropriate for Father's Day. Being a father is a very harsh suffering in many ways. When you see your children in the midst of um, our understanding of what a human being should be, and them just being so immature, it just brings us down and hopeless. But Paul reminds us that they're only four-year-old, six-year-old. Paul reminds us that we are still so young compared to our Father in heaven. And when we see ourselves continuously falling back into temptation, sin, He gives us hope. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us to remember that our adoption into Christ, into our Father, that's done. He is our Father. And He is at work constantly, actively in us today. So what are some struggles can you think of in your life? What are some difficulties that really bring you down, that make you groan in pain, and you just lose all words and all thoughts? And also, what are some hope, what are some glimpses of the hope of glory that is yet to be seen in your eyes, but the Holy Spirit wants you to see? Let's remember that future glory. Remember the perfection that is promised to us, to the creation, to the whole world. Our Savior is coming back, and we will be with our Father. There will be no more sorrow. We will be able to fully praise God and enjoy Him forever. 
So by looking at that hope, let us continue to patiently persevere. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for who you are and what you did and do for us. We are weak to the lowest point, and where, where we are weak, you groan for us. You know exactly what we are going through, and you know what we need. So let us remember your kind guidance. We remember your sovereign power and to trust in your faithfulness. So we thank you for molding us into your son's image day by day, allowing us to look to you for hope. In the wonderful name of Jesus we pray, amen.